Welcome to this episode of the Degenerate Art Podcast. I'm your host, Mick Parsons. Episode 2 features Amanda Hay, a Louisville, Kentucky-based storyteller. And this episode is sponsored by Sludge Book Reviews, offering critical reviews of contemporary literature at sludgereview.com. Look for our first reviews at the end of August to help you with your September reading lists. Now, on with the show. memory of of storytelling i mean because you grew up around a lot of really talkative yeah vociferous is the <laughs> the word that comes to mind <laughs> who are you calling vociferous no uh, <laughs> um probably my mom's family uh they would get together and tell stories and it because my mom grew up uh like up a holler in in appalachia uh they always seemed like these, not fairy tales exactly, but, but stories out of another time. Like, because um, she would talk about, you know, when she, you know, when she was little, they, they had an outhouse, and uh, when she was really little, uh, I don't know that they had electricity there. Uh, and so, it, other kids had, I, I guess, fairy tales, but... I heard these stories about life in the mountains, and it felt like that. It felt that removed, almost like a, I was a big fan of uh, the Little House on the Prairie books, and I couldn't imagine living that kind of life, you know, taking the covered wagon out west. And so my mom's childhood stories felt felt a lot like that, too. Yeah. Real, but removed enough to be... Yeah. Real, real. I mean, you know, the, the the details were real, and I, my aunt too, still lived on the land, um, you know, where my mom had been born. My family had owned for a long time, and so we would go up and visit there. And mom could point out places and relate stories she told me to, you know, to to real to real places and the creeks she played in and everything like that. But that much of a of a divide technologically, and just the idea of going to a one-room schoolhouse and of, of living like that. Um, I was fascinated by it, but it felt otherworldly to me. Sure. I mean, it, it, I remember the, the story you told on Kentucky Homefront yeah. about uh, <laughs> the turkey. Yeah, yeah. And you, you went to the trouble of explaining, like, upper room and lower room because it was this very sort of specific language to mean a specific thing and because when mom I, I was asking mom about the story um, and she corrected the language that I used she said no it wasn't the front room or the living room it was the upper room which in in that just meant uh, since I lived on a creek it was the room that was upstream you know the, the, the point upstream that's just what upper room meant it was all it was all one story there wasn't you know, stairs or anything um, and yeah, she she made sure that I used the language of that. So the uh, getting getting the language, getting the vernacular right in the story was was important to me to to tell and communicate this great story about how 
uh, my mom rode a turkey through the house when her older sisters had suitors coming to visit. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that, that, that finding that vernacular, like with some, a lot of the stories you tell our family stories. Yeah. So do you think that finding, like, remembering the vernacular, like how important is that to to your process, to how you figure out your stories or how you decide what to tell? Or, like, is, does it matter? Oh, yeah. Does the vernacular matter? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I haven't told as many of my dad's stories as I have my mom's, but even when I, when I go over some of his old stories, he grew up in uh, the Portland neighborhood in Louisville. And uh, I want the, 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 the language, the language that you use, the description that you use, it's important to get it right. And I don't mean in excruciating detail, like was it 2 p.m. or 3 p.m.? It was afternoon. You know, let's just let's round it up on that one. But if there is specific language used, it's important to get that right um, for, for, these, for these family stories that most of them happened well before, you know, 30 years before I was born, you know, 25, 30 years before I came into the picture. And it's important to capture not just the language, but the, the time that it's in. So talk to me a little bit about what you do to prepare. Oh, before I tell a story? Before you tell a story. Uh, um, once, I, once I have in mind, like if there's a, if there's a theme for uh, something that I'm pitching for or for the moth or something like that, um, first of all, I have to figure out what I'm going to do within the theme. And um, I'll play back and forth with all the meanings of the word of the theme. You know, like if, for example, if the theme was fights, you know, you go back and forth. What, what kind of fights? Is it with someone you know? Is it with a stranger? Is it between two socially unequal people, as in a teacher and student, a police officer and someone on the street? You know, or is it a sibling fight or something like that? So once, once I kind of settle on what I want to go with, um, the actual story itself, I don't, I don't write most of it down. Like I'll, I'll write notes. I'll make notes to myself, and uh, I'll practice. Usually in the car. Usually in the car when I'm driving, I'll practice telling stories to myself. Which is, I have a lot of road rage, so unfortunately I usually, you know, break in cursing in the middle of practicing my story. But I'll, I'll tell it to myself, and I'll find where the story hangs up. Um, sometimes I use like a voice recorder on my phone as I'm driving and I'll listen where I hesitate and where I'm having trouble making a connection from one section to another, a phrase that I like, a phrase that, that trips me up. And so I'll, I'll go back and listen to it and revise my notes and kind of have an outline for it. But most of the time when I actually perform, I don't, I don't think I've ever performed using, using notes. Um, I, uh, I, I, work, I work on memorizing the piece. And even if it's not a verbatim word-for-word -word memorization, I know what I want to say and, and how I want to get there. I work that out. Yeah. But you also write a little bit, too. I mean, I know you don't write your stories down, but you do write. Oh, down. sure. You're a prolific letter writer. I, I am. Uh, I, keep, I keep a modest journal. Uh, every once in a while, and honestly, I kind of cheated that sometimes because 
like I'll email my family and say over what happened over the weekend and when it comes time to write it later, I'm like, oh my gosh, I already wrote all this down and worked it out. I'm just, so I just copy and paste it. Um, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a prolific letter writer. I love to write letters. There's something about the there's something about the process of it, about laying it down. So you're right, even though I don't necessarily write down the stories that I tell, I go back a lot of times to to letters that I've written, to emails that I've written. Because I, I don't I don't dash off a couple of times of email. I write an email like like it's a letter when I when I do send one. Um, so yeah, I do I do eh, I, I do write some and go back and work from that. So how important is that sort of documentation for? Because I mean, you know, you talk about moth style telling. That that's one kind of thing where you get a theme <laughs> and you kind of find a way to fit things in. But you also you know, you've been in venues and things where you, you have sort of free reign as to what you're going to talk about, yeah. what you're, what you're, you're going to tell. So do you think that the, the letter writing and sort of the the, the record keeping, because there seems there's a very much of a record keeping process to, to everything that you're doing, doing the letter writing and the storytelling, and it, and it feels, they feel connected to me. They've always felt connected to me. No, you're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> Sometimes my my little brother will call me out of the blue with a really weirdly specific question about our childhood, about our past, something that happened that one time in church when we were in middle school, and I have the answer almost always right at the top of my head. He's he's won bar bets this way before. He'll say something <laughs> like, you know, um, I'm gonna call my sister and I will bet you the next round of drinks that she will tell you what happened. Every year on Fourth of July at church, he called me and said, "Oh yeah, well the guy that used to be the Boy Scout leader, he was a Vietnam vet. He would go up and get the flag and run up and down the aisle waving it, and we all pretended it didn't happen." He'd say, "Thank you," and hang up. And <laughs> he'd get around a drink out of it. Um, no, you're you're absolutely right. It it is uh, the keeping of stories and of passing of passing that along. Um, You get to a certain age and you realize that your your elders, you know, your aunts and your uncles and, and your parents, they're they're aging and there's this wealth of family history that if somebody doesn't pay attention, if somebody doesn't listen, it's just lost. It's not it's not even like a with contemporary history, you, you can you can find someone else that wrote about it. But there's something about a family history. There's there's only so many of you that ever experience it at all. Um, we were talking, you and I were talking one time about um, about connecting with the with, the, with the brothers, with their brothers, and how they were the only other person that lived through your childhood with you that experienced it in anything approaching the same way. And they have their own perspective, and they have, you know, their they have their own experiences within that. But you have this lengthy shared experience, these stories, these legends almost that you that you get to share with each other. So how far back does your does your memory actually go? Like how far like how hard is it for you to mine things like from like your your when you're younger? My earliest my earliest memory and I worked it out because my mom was gardening. She was squatting down and planting marigolds. And a rabbit ran out from the flowers. And I turned to watch it go. And from behind me, she said, look, Mandy, it's a rabbit. Look, it's a rabbit. Now, 
the house that we were at, I know when we moved from that house, and it was springtime, it was probably Derby weekend when she was planting the flowers, so I was just shy of two years old. I have clear memories from the first house, and we, we left there before my brother was born. We left in February of 77. Um, so I, I have clear memories that far back. And, uh, and you know, there, and of course, there, there's, there's times and years that, that kind of meld together. You know, you don't have every single clear memory, but I have sharp, distinct ones. Uh, starting that early back. Have you ever forgotten something that you wish you could remember? How would I know? Well, I, don't know. I mean, I, I think that there, like, sometimes we're aware of, of sort of gaps in memory and, and things that we, we were supposed, that we, we should know, we should remember. People remind yeah. me of stuff all the time that I did when I was a kid, and I'm like, I have no memory of this thing. Uh, yes, actually, there's a, I remember, it, again, it goes, it goes back to family. I remember going with mom to visit, oh, either my cousin Donna and her family or, uh, or someone else, and I would be aware of all of the adults at the table telling stories back and forth, and I'd wander in and listen a little bit, but then I'd go off and play, and I wish desperately that I could go back and listen to them reminisce, because it's the stream of consciousness of, like, do you remember that jump rope at, you know, at Aunt Cletus? Yeah, it was hung up on a nail. She wouldn't let any other kids play with it except for me. Do you remember this? And they would just go back and forth and build off these memories with each other, doing that same kind of thing, kind of going back and mining memory. Uh, so yeah, I wish uh, I wish I'd better, been a better eavesdropper. Wish I'd paid better attention. <laughs> how much of that do you think? How much of that uh, eavesdropping is involved in, in your storytelling process? Do you think it uh, has any? Any place? Because I know yeah. sometimes you don't. So you don't always. You don't just tell family stories because you tell. Right, right. You know. No, it, it, look, it absolutely is. Everybody, everybody has a story to tell. They don't always know how to communicate it. Um, sometimes you'll hear over here just a couple of lines, and it's so tempting. You just want to walk over to a stranger and go, "Excuse me, you have to tell me what's going on. You know, what? Where is that coming from?" That. That sort of sort of eavesdropping with that, um, and sometimes I do. <laughs> I am, I absolutely will walk up to perfect strangers and just butt right in. And for the most part, people rarely mind because everybody wants to. Everybody wants their story known. Everybody wants to tell a story. And you ask a few probing questions, and sometimes you just have to ask the right question. Someone could be. Uh, really terrible at communicating, but if you pick up on the thread of their story, you ask the right questions to open it up, it can go in a completely unexpected direction. So you do that with strangers, you do that with, with friends, you, you just sort of do that with yourself even. Um, try to look at something, you know, if you're, if you're trying to do, trying to, to form a narrative, trying to form a story, uh, go at it from a different direction. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's always, that I find really fascinating about storytelling as sort of, as, a, as an art and as a, as a process, is that the only way that you ever, like, I mean, you could take a class, mm -hmm. but it's not really the same thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and I, think it, I think it's that way with most arts. Like, really all you need is, is time, but like with storytelling, like I notice uh, around, around here, 
uh, like when we go uh, over to your folks mm -hmm. for dinner on on Tuesdays, and the kids yeah. and the kids go with us. Um, the kids have gotten better about how they tell their stories. That's true. And and I find it like you know and and like they're more inclined to draw things out, and they're more aware of like of the whole thing. Yeah. And I, and I I think it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting process because somebody you know uh, somebody told me once that uh, well George Eklund told me once that that because uh, I told him that that I was trying to work on storytelling and that you were doing storytelling and I, and I told him that you were much better than <laughs> you are and uh, and he pointed out that that usually you have to be come up in a tradition like you have to be around it yeah and. Uh, I think it's it's interesting how it's sort of it's one of the few arts that truly communicates sort of like person to person in that way. You know, other things you can go off by yourself, like you know, the way you you become a poet is you go off by yourself and you write. The way you become a novelist is you go off by yourself and write. The way you become a storyteller is you sit around and listen to other people tell stories. That's that's very true. Another thing that I like about it, not only is it. it it's interactive by nature. You're not really a storyteller if there's no audience. There have to be people to listen as well as to tell. Um, but I appreciate what an ephemeral art form it is. And I understand you can do videos, you can do recordings, you can even write it down. But to capture the performance, the, the nature of being one-on-one -on -one with someone there in the room with you, uh, I I love that part of it. I appreciate the ephemeral nature of it. Um, it can be it can be a wholly unique experience. Uh, you know, if you if if the if the teller is really interacting with the audience, is you know, is really connecting, and the audience is just hanging on every word, it's it's fantastic. <laughs> Since you started this whole thing a few years ago, because so, you've been, you know, as long, you know, as long as you know we've known each other, you've always been sort of a talking storytelling kind of person. Mm -hmm. But it was only a couple of years ago that you started getting up on a stage in a performance setting yeah. to tell stories. Yeah. So, what do you think has changed from then until like right now in terms of how you think about what you do? Well. I never look when I was younger i I was aware of storytelling in only the most peripheral fashion. Um, you had your spooky storytelling around Halloween. you had uh, old people to tell stories at like you know Girl Scout Boy Scout camp. but I think in my mind, I sort of compartmentalized it as something that you did for kids. It wasn't something that you did for other adults or that you did as an adult, maybe. Um, I'm not sure why I, I had that idea exactly. Maybe maybe in a, in a formalized setting. Because you could t sit amongst a group of friends or with your family and sit and tell stories all night long. But to do it in a more formalized setting, it didn't occur to me that that was something, that that was something to do. Um, but there has been, there's been a proliferation of, of outlets, of, of venues, of, uh, of podcasts that celebrate storytelling, of radio shows, and um, that 
that sort of opened it up to me. I decided to try going on stage at the Moth, and after I got past the shakes, got up the stairs on stage, I was hooked. That was it. Um, I knew, and and that's been that's been almost four years ago now, yeah. and uh, I've. I've taken every opportunity presented to me to get on stage, to tell stories, uh, get involved Kentucky Storytelling Association, um, the board of directors for that, involved with that. Um, yeah, so it just, uh, I think the timing was right, you know, when it, when it hit. It, it, okay, it reminds me of when you're, when you're about to buy a new car, you're shopping for a car, and, uh, as soon as you make up your mind on the car you're going to buy, you suddenly see them everywhere, and you wonder why you never saw them all over the street beforehand. It feels that way. Once I started paying attention to storytelling, everything opened up. I suddenly realized how many, you know, how many different uh, different venues and everything that there were that there, that were available, and so I've taken advantage of it. Yeah. This episode of the Degenerate Art Podcast is sponsored by Social Abundance Marketing. From social media coaching and training to workshops and consulting, Social Abundance Marketing can help you transform your business's online presence. Check out Social Abundance Marketing at socialabundancemarketing.com, on their Facebook page, on their Twitter feed, or LinkedIn page. Social Abundance Marketing, where social media is as colorful as your personality. What is it about, because, you know, that sort of the comparison to... to uh, you know the car and seeing it everywhere. Mm -hmm. What what is it about storytelling that you think that what is it about it that, that people are, are coming back to? Because I feel like it's something people have come back to. Like yeah. it seems like a relatively like in the last seven ten years. Uh, I mean, there have been storytellers as long as there have been like you know people sitting around fires. But like, what is it in the last like what is it that that have drawn people back to it as as an art form? And is it, is it different than it, and has that changed it? Um, I, I, think, I think part of what people are coming back to um, is this, this increasingly technologically connected society that we're in. Because while you have instant access to nearly anyone at any time, I think people feel isolated. Um, because there's this access, you feel like there should there's this access all the time, so you should have someone there all the time. And I, I know that that's not that's that's not true. That's not how it how it works out. I think people are are lonely and feel isolated. And with the storytelling, it's this way of connecting. Um, it's this way of touching on the most human parts of ourselves and sharing that with other people and you hear something and you hear an echo of your own life or you see the exact opposite but you have a different perspective on it. I, I feel like it makes us more connected with each other and with ourselves. Um, I tend to tell, I love to tell a self-deprecating self story. Like I love to put myself in an unflattering light and I've been thinking about that a lot lately. You know, why do, why do I enjoy it so much? Um, and for me, it's a way of controlling my own narrative, but also to connect with people. Um, 
if I tell something about, you know, what an what an awkward child I was and you know how I felt kind of kind of isolated and I didn't know how to use slang terms. Um, I really really butchered that. In the 80s, that's that's not cool, man. You need to do that. Was there actually proper language in the 80s? Like everybody was sort of in some weird lingo or slang or. Yeah, but that's exactly it. The slang was so alien to me that I would derive it to what I thought the proper English should be and would use that instead. Oh, I got my butt whipped a lot, man. <laughs> Oh, but I guess for for me to to share to share those stories and share the parts of myself, the uh, less flattering parts, the ugly parts of myself, um, that everybody has, and we don't dog really. Y'all are killing me. They want to be included. Yeah. Yeah. So those those flawed parts of ourselves that I feel like if I'm if I'm able to share that and if I'm able to communicate that that part of myself and that experience that other people connect to it. The, one of the things that I've, I've noticed and maybe it's because I, I tend to notice schisms. Yeah. You know, I come from sort of an academic background, like you do, and although I've been writing for years, most of what I, I, I learned, I learned in an academic setting because I was in a place where it was set up to where I could actually learn, and I was left on my own a lot. But there's always these schisms in the arts, like you have, you know, like formal training. Like, you know, uh -huh. you see this a lot in painting, people yeah. who are formally trained versus... Uh, folk art. Folk art. Yeah. And, and while folk art is increasingly a less deprecating term, mm -hmm. over oh. the years it's been kind of an insult. Yeah. And, and I notice a schism, like, I notice this sort of breach in, 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 in storytelling. Like, you've got the, the traditionalists uh -huh. who were telling folk tales and uh, and then the, the sort of the resurgence of interest in storytelling that has to do with interest in the moth and uh, this American life and sort of like that that storytelling as a contemporary historical record mm -hmm. so where do you see yourself in that because you, you, you kind of do both and you kind of do both with the same sort of frequency that's true that's true um I look. I came to storytelling in the form that that I have now. Like as as an adult, I came to storytelling through the moth. Uh, so so a lot of times that's where my mind immediately goes. If there's uh, even when there's even when there's slams, like at the um, oh, a few years ago, like Cape Run Storytelling uh, Festival at the annual conference for. For the, for the KSA, when there are story slams, I fall back on those very personal stories. Um, that's, it's a comfort zone. Um, and so, but I've been expanding out into, I've, I've always loved, I've always loved uh, folk tales, um, traditional stories, but I'm expanding out to those to include those in my repertoire as well. I really like both of them, but I know I know exactly what you're talking about. Where 
there does seem to be a divide, and there's almost a puzzlement on the side of the of the traditional storytellers why this is so hugely popular. They've been here the whole time, so why is this a very introspective type of storytelling so popular? I bet people ask me that with you know. <laughs> With, with genuine concern, like, you know, why, why do people like this so much? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know that I have an answer to that. I think that there's, there's, a, there's a wealth to be found on, on either side of that. Sometimes I feel like it's, it's almost, with, the, with personal stories, it's almost kind of a bystander mentality. Like, you know, it's like I remember... Yeah. I remember you know, when I was a kid, you know, my mom would watch soap operas and my grandma would watch soap operas. And, mm-hmm. I, and I remember asking uh, somebody, my mother or my grandmother, you know, why? Because I found the whole thing a little perplexing because the writing was awful and the lighting was bad and yeah. lots of overdramatic music for very little, you know. And <laughs> There's no payoff. <laughs> there's no payoff. And, 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 and I was told that it was because that, you know, no matter how bad your life is, that it can always be worse. Like, it was a way to sort of, like, disconnect from what's going on. Yeah. And, like, you know, and it puts your own life in perspective. I don't know that I really bought that at the time. It seemed kind of like, you know, but I, I wonder sometimes if people like personal stories because it's kind of a bystander thing. Like, they're like, you know, it's like the, not quite the, the, the reason that people rubberneck when there's an accident on the interstate, but like... No, it's definitely voyeuristic. No, I get exactly what you're saying, that you get, you get this glimpse into a slice of somebody's life, this bleeding slice of their life, um, that, they're, that they're sharing with strangers and that they're putting out there into the world. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good theory on that bystander effect. Yeah. yeah. Good theory. Do you think it has any water to it, though? <laughs> I, no, I think, I think you're right on that. I think that, I think a lot of people... The mentality like I had when I was younger, they sort of dismiss these traditional stories, these folk tales, um, as something that you just tell, you tell children. I think maybe sometimes they feel they're too far removed from the reason these stories were told in the first place, that it doesn't apply within their own lives. But they can see if someone's telling a very, a very contemporary story and about their loss, their pain, their triumph, whatever direction they go with it. But that maybe people find that more relatable. It's hard to be a bystander in, you know, like, an agrarian, agrarian uh, European folktale yeah. uh, with wolves. You know, what do they worry about wolves? Not coyotes. They, they know that. They snatch, you know, <laughs> snatch little dogs up in the neighborhood. They do. They do. Not our dog, though. But, uh, yeah, it just it seems like, but I, I think the schism is interesting, and I, and I think there's, like, unnecessary panic. Like, the, because I, I, I've been around when people sort of ask, you know, why, what's the, 
the original story teller is asking what the interest yeah. is, is in these in these personal stories, <laughs> and I. But I I think I wonder if they're just not worried that maybe the thing that 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 they do like they're, I think maybe they're worried about it going away. Because there is, there's an art to, there's there's a difference in telling a personal story than there is in telling a folktale. Yes. And they're both valid, but I, I, I think that people are worried about, like, that sense of history disappearing. Because one of the things about, about those old stories is that, yeah, I mean, they're sort of like, we're so far removed from that. Mm -hmm. But... That, that absence of, of history, I think. Because part of me thinks part of the reason why storytelling is so, is getting this, this resurgence is because we're feeling an absence of history. We're feeling an absence. You know, loneliness is part of that. That's but like this absence of history because everything moves so fast and we're so connected but we're so isolated at the same time. Right. Like you were saying, but I think it's more than just loneliness. I think it's just this total disconnect from everything. You know? Yeah. When you were in school, as far as just world history, I don't know about you, did you ever, ever get past World War II in any class? At one high school class, uh, we got to Kennedy. You know, when I was in second grade, and we got new social studies textbooks. Yeah. And this was right after Reagan was elected. Uh -huh. And so it went up to the inauguration. Oh, nice. And so there was this picture of, of Reagan standing there with, I forget who the Supreme Court Justice was at that time. And, uh, but you're right, like up to World War II, everything was sort of like detailed. And there were lots of pictures. Right, and then it glossed over, and you maybe got a day per decade at the end of the school year when nobody's paying attention. Nobody's plugged in. Yeah, anything. I mean, it, it, like you spent, you're right, you spent three quarters of the year getting to World War II, and then like the last quarter, the last three weeks, like you're focused, you, you get to, to you get to Korea, right. Vietnam, the Civil Rights yeah, era. Yeah, exactly. Like, and 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 they they put it in this decade packaging that makes it all feel like it's like the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and and then the book ended with Reagan, and that that, that almost felt like this. When I think back about that now, that sort of defines the Manifest Destiny arc for me, like how they sort of intended it to be. You know, it's like. Yeah. This is all determined. This has all been predetermined. So, and that, look, and that's just in school in a formal setting. I, I have no idea what kids learn now. I have no idea where they take them or how much history they learn or how it's taught to them. Um, but it, that's a good point that you make about this disconnect from history. Our family histories, our country's history, in a contemporary sense, everything kind of after World War II is tied neatly up into decades. It's ridiculous. You know that's not, that's not how time goes. That's not how history goes. One of the things about, about any art that I, I think is extraordinarily powerful, and, and everybody I talk to in different, in different disciplines, you know, I've talked to musicians who've told me how, how music you know, saved and, and changed them, and and, and and I know for myself that the that, that writing 
change the direction of my life. I would not be where I'm at at all without it. And I know that you know, and you know, you've been actively engaged in, in polishing your your storytelling as a craft for 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 four years now. So, do you think is it too soon to ask, or to sort of think about how it's changed or changing? Oh no, it's absolutely not too soon to ask. It. I went through a really ugly breakup of my first marriage right about the time that I started storytelling and I've explored that some um, worked through some of the experiences I had and some of the things that happened to me worked through that through storytelling um, and it's given me <laughs> it's given me a clearer idea of of what's important to me and of who I am. When when I went through the breakup, I I knew that I had changed for the worse. I'd become this this shallow person and this sad person. And I knew I wanted to get back to being my old self, but I couldn't remember what I liked best about myself before that, which sounds you you, you may ask, well, you know, how can you forget that? No, you just do. After after you you know you're kind of mentally beat down for so long, um, I forgot what I liked best about myself, and so I decided to try things to try things out and explore things that I thought the kind of person that I wanted to be would enjoy or would try, and uh, some of it some of it stuck, some of it didn't. <laughs> Um, I, I cast a wide net, and I'd always wanted to try, like, ever since I'd heard about, about the mop and about the show, the radio show, and found out that we had one in Louisville, that we had a monthly story slam, I'd wanted to try it so desperately, and it just never, it never worked out. Um, either money or transportation or whatever. So this has been part of my process of reclaiming the best parts of myself and of exploring that. And even, even as, like I was saying before, talking about, um, oh, sharing the unflattering stories about myself, the awkward stories, the ones where I'm, I'm kind of mean-spirited, uh, or just show uglier parts of myself. That, too. I embrace that. Those parts of myself, the flawed and the ugly parts, can still be the best parts of me. Because it, 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 that's who I am. It, it all makes it up. And so through storytelling, I've explored a lot of that in the personal stories, but also even when I do tell other people's stories, when I tell traditional stories or, you know, share family stories or something that didn't personally happen to me, I still, I still approach it like that. I still look for the best and worst parts of everyone in the stories that I tell. So yeah, it has absolutely changed me. Um, it, it helped save the good parts of me. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Degenerate Art Podcast. Our next episode will drop in two weeks and feature novelist Reagan M. Silva talking about his new book that's uh, been published by Harvard Square Press entitled Tiger Island. I had a, a Christmas break that um, that I had like two weeks and, and I wasn't very interested in uh, in the scholarly work, <laughs> which is why I ended up dropping out. But uh, so, so my mind went other things and started, you know, laying the foundation of this. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at DegenerateArt underscore P or find us on Facebook. Thanks again for listening.